Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. I love it so much. That's how you get ahead in that kind of industry. My perfect gym. I was stuck in a bar in Kansas and and I thought, you know who should be here? Stephen Sondheim. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 21, On the Road Again. Hello. Welcome. Hey, everybody. I just want everyone to know that Jesse, or actually I should ask you, Jesse, how are you? Yeah for this episode. Are you okay? Do we need to get you like a cold drink? I, I'm not even kidding. I actually cried during this episode. You'll know when. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I, um, I've been waiting. I love that this episode is back to back with Heart of Gold. I feel like you and I are like really hitting like particular uh, personal peaks. Yes, we are. Of our loves (laughs) of this show. I love it so much. I, I was like, yo, I am really thinking of Jesse right now where I'm looking at Charles Kimbrough's shoulders. <sighs> oh, that man. He's so special. He's so special. I'm so excited to talk about how special he is. Um, So this episode is named after a song that is not played, though, because it isn't really a 60s Motown song. On the Road Again is a very famous song by Mr. Willie Nelson, which I didn't know until oh, this yeah. podcast is from a movie called Honeysuckle Rose from 1980. And it is his most famous hit that I know. So this is um, with no shock for anyone directed by Barnett Kelman. It is written by Cy Duquesne and Denise Moss, who will be uh, our guest coming up in the next episode or so. Oh, so excited. Very exciting. I think you're going to love the interview. And it aired March 5th, 1990, which Mm. also happened to be the day that Candace Bergen guest starred as Murphy Brown on Sesame Street. Yay. She interviewed Oscar the Grouch. It is really good. Yes, and we'll have a link in the show notes for you guys to check it out. I never thought that anyone could be more perfect to interview Oscar the Grouch Mm -hmm. about socks. It's funny because I forget about Murphy being on Sesame Street because Candace hosting like the Muppet show Mm -hmm. is like so seared in my mind, but... I keep forgetting that they're not separate events because my child brain just blended them together as one experience of Candace Bergen in my childhood. No, that makes sense. I always known that she'd been on Sesame Street and I had not realized that she appeared as Murphy, which, of course, we were yeah. counting as canon. Absolutely. This is, I think, a really interesting song because it brings up something that I don't know if you thought, Jesse, but I definitely thought, and according to my research, many, many people thought that the song Rescue Me from 1964 was sung by Aretha Franklin. Lots of people. Were you one of those people, Jesse? I had honestly never thought about it until I was looking at it for this episode. Mm-hmm. So I think my brain probably had assumed, but I had not formed a thought about who I thought had done the song, but I just, I think I just assumed. Also, if I'm actually more honest, I think my brain as a child, it's synonymous with Sister Act. Oh, good point. So I knew it as a cover. So I don't think I had actually ever considered who originally did it because I just knew it as poor Whoopi Goldberg, like washing a bus. But let me tell you a little bit about who did sing this song. Fontella Bass, who recorded for Chess, which is something 
we don't talk about a no. lot. Chess was a really amazing record label in the 1960s. So the Today Show posted on their website in 2012 when Fontana passed away at the age of 72 about the fact that many people believe that this is an Aretha Franklin song. And they quoted that an entry on the online All Music Encyclopedia reads, quote, the 1965 classic Rescue Me is widely regarded as the greatest record Aretha Franklin never made. <laughs> That's a good line. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, it seems was something that followed her most of her life. Um, she did come from a music family. Her mother was a gospel uh, singer named Martha Bass. Her brother was R&B and gospel singer David, I hope I say this right, you know who I am with names, Piestin, who died also in 2012, uh, right before his sister. Some other songs you may know of hers are Don't Mess With a Good Thing. You'll Miss Me When I'm Gone. Both of these are with uh, Bobby McClure. But this obviously became her most famous song, even if most people didn't know that she sang it. Unfortunately, in 1993, although she won, she did sue American Express for using the song without her permission in a 1990 commercial, just to kind of link this to the 90s. So definitely check her out because... She is someone who had an amazing voice who unfortunately really didn't get the recognition or the success that she deserved because she happened to sound like Aretha Franklin. Yeah, what? Like, that's it's, yeah, you don't think of things like it, that, right? No, and it's interesting because, like, it's so, I can see it being so twofold of the, the compliment of being mistaken for Aretha Franklin, but also the fact that being like, uh, what a shadow. Yeah. And what, like, it's such a popular song. Like, I don't think I know a person who wouldn't start singing along to it. And the idea that mm-hmm. they don't know your name and not by choice. Oof. That must yeah. have been painful to process. Hopefully now we have set the record straight for people. And now they can correct people whenever someone tells them. It just takes one. That this is an Aretha Franklin song. And you go, no, it's Vontella Bass. Yeah, it is. So this song is one of those songs that really kind of doesn't really go with the episode. It almost feels like they needed something to put at the beginning because it was the traditional opening. Mm-hmm. That's what I would it say. It does feel that way. Although Rescue Me, obviously, Vacation, yeah. cruise ships, things like that. But what Frank is doing doesn't really have to do with the, the episode. You, no. you could have cut this out in syndication and no one would have known. Oh, 100%. Yes. So Frank is dancing down the back hallway. He's really excited. I was happy he didn't grab a woman and kiss her this time. He's just dancing with someone. I thought it was going to happen. It did seem like that because he has done it as we Mm -hmm. talked about Mm -hmm. it. I think that he was dancing with Fran. Again, Mm -hmm. the extra office people names. Sometimes I I miss who they are. But that looked like Fran to me. Uh, So pretty much Frank is just in a really good mood as the music fades out and he starts annoying everybody by whistling the song that, of course, I've been playing before. Uh, Corky is annoyed. She's on deadline. Frank won't stop Mm -hmm. whistling. It would drive me nuts. Actually, Mm -hmm. whistling to me feels like a nails on a chalkboard. I don't know why. Yeah, it's a bit Not always. I had a... um, a pediatrician who whistled all the time. So maybe it's like that sort of, you know, uh, Pavlovian thing with me. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not a fan of it. Anyway, um, Phil is there yelling out breakfast orders. I had no idea that Phil served breakfast. So that's nice. Same note. I was like, wow, okay. All right. This is a new side to Phil. I didn't realize that Phil personally delivered the breakfast orders, but what what a man. No wonder he's such an institution. Seriously. Although maybe he just does this special for reporters. 
Also, probably. I just like I feel like this brought a new a new side to Phil that I enjoy because I actually I do too. Once I had absorbed it, I wasn't surprised. Yeah, no, not at all. Also interesting is everyone's order. I find (laughs) these kind of things very specific. So we have an egg sandwich for Jim. Mm -hmm. Corky likes an English muffin. And I was surprised because Murphy is just having a donut, which, of course, I wrote coronary much. Really? Murphy does not have a good diet, which is definitely established. She enters off the elevator, chanting breakfast of champions when Phil calls out her order. Frank is kind of like dancing his butt next to Murphy. He's trying to like get her attention so badly. He's trying very hard. And she knows him so well that she knows that he you know, has something to say and he needs to spill it. Apparently, the story of the day is that they're going to be sending the anchors to publicize new affiliates all over the country, obviously assuming CBS affiliates, one Mm -hmm. in Kansas, boo, but the other one is in Hawaii. Yay. Phil interrupts Frank to correct him on the name of the island, which he gets wrong, and how many days. So pretty much everything that Frank says is a little correct, but Phil corrects him on what is the 100% truth. Then Miles enters, and uh, before he can even let it slip, Corky says that they all know that they're going to be going to Hawaii. And then everyone starts doing the hula. Yep. Uh, Mele Kalikimaka, made famous by the, uh, the Hawaiian Christmas Day song. Miles asks, you know, which two of them are going, which is an unhappy development. And everyone blames Frank. Frank blames Phil, uh, who says he knew that it was just the two of them, but he's not stupid enough to say it. And then he throws Miles his bagel, and they all force Miles to pick. He chooses Jim and Murphy because he thinks that Murphy can hurt him, but also Corky went last time, and Frank has to report that he really needs to work on. Yeah, it was honestly a fair choice, but I think that Murphy hurting is enough of a reason to send Murphy. Also seniority. Yeah, no, and then we cut to... We find ourselves shocking no one in Kansas. Outside's looking a little blustery in the exterior shot. I'm seeing some very familiar side-swept snow from my childhood in the rural Minnesota area. So can I ask a question as someone who has not spent much time in the Midwest? So around this time, so Kansas would be a similar weather pattern to where you grew up? Like how different, like how similar? Very similar to where I grew up, because I I grew up in northern Minnesota, so I grew up in very open plains. Uh, When you get down to where the Twin Mm -hmm. Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and so on, you get more uh, lake country with a bit more hill happening. But where I grew up, it's, you can, as far as the eye can see, plains. Uh, So very similar to the area of Kansas that they're supposed to be in, where it is just wide open not much shelter from the blizzard. The Some of the worst parts about that particular kind of winter is uh, it's not that it's snowing very hard, it's that the wind is blowing it in your face sideways. Oh, ow. And yes. it's too cold to snow. Yes, I've heard that it can be too cold to snow. Yes, you wait for it to warm up so it will snow again. Yes, the only thing I know about Kansas is that there is a town called Millburger. Oh, right. Yes. And just for the people listening... I have no connection to this town. It was uh, it was established by Germans who moved to Russia and then came over, and none of them were Jewish. Hmm. So I have no connection to this town, and I know nothing about it. Well, I have I have more a few more facts, which is uh, we open on the the hotel bar of a what I assume is probably the best hotel in this town in Kansas, 
and Jim saying to our new friends in the heart of America's breadbasket, welcome to the network and everyone cheers. Now I do, I did because me want to double check that I was right about what America's breadbasket actually is. Oh, please. Now in the early 20th century, Kansas uh, changed their nickname to the wheat state. So they do uh, personally claim themselves as the breadbasket. Uh, but the breadbasket is a region of the United States uh, that's basically the Great Plains. Uh, this is east of the Rocky Mountains and west of the Mississippi River. Uh, it's famous for grain and corn production, hence the breadbasket. Anywho, this is why the Midwest is a confusing concept. Yes. So we come back to Jim and Murphy. And they. I will talk about this bar later when we come back to it. But I just need you to know, I know this bar. Like, I know in my heart, Ooh, I know this research, bar. research then. I grew up in this bar. Like these are these are the bars of my childhood. So they're talking to a gentleman who's clearly from the local uh, station. It is the station. Oh, where is it? It's KFLT. Yes. Uh, and Gil is their point man. They're like kind of shaking what's clearly snow off of their coats. And Murphy says, so Gil, what, what is it? 90 below as a joke. And he goes, oh, this is nothing. Last night a cow froze on the interstate. Once you see something like that, you never forget it. <laughs> and <laughs> which... It's not wrong. (laughs) The things I have witnessed. It's not wrong. It's not wrong. And that's what's really sad about the joke. It's really real. Uh, Murphy is clearly trying to move the show forward, uh, that they're prepping to get things done quickly with Gil because they have a tight schedule, another important business engagement that they need to get to. Murphy is clearly very eager and Jim is in host mode, which I really appreciate. Jim is very good to these people. Of course. My perfect Jim, who has clearly done this many times before. So Gil, of course, you know, ushers them over uh, to meet KFLT's own action news team. Except the weather guy, who is late. Uh, We meet Pete Richmond and Diane Daly, who are the anchors. We meet Chuck Forrest, who does sports. And the missing weatherman is, of course, in great weather tradition named Steve Rains. (laughs) Uh, We'll meet Steve in a minute. Don't worry. Murphy looks a little nervous. She wants to know if they have to wait for Steve to arrive. Um, like Not that they don't want to wait, but you know they have this very tight schedule, important business engagement that they need to get to. Um, at this moment, no one seems to be catching on to her urgency because Pete Richmond, the anchor, decides this is the moment to suck up to the anchors from the station, from the big network station. Before we get into Pete... What I love is he comes to Jim and Murphy, shakes our hands that, you know, he's been a big fan of theirs for a long time, really respects them. And Jim just does the perfect, like, magnanimous pitch of the importance of small town news that, you know, like, mm. he's like, no, no, you do the real news in the heartland of America. I'm just like, oh, Jim, you're so good at this. He's so good at his job. Can we talk for a moment about Gil, though? Oh, yes, let's talk because about Gil. Because he's played by... A veteran character actor, mm-hmm. Gregory Itzen, who many people may know from 24. I feel like that's probably what people know him from or the most. everything as... you've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> literally, I wrote under his name in our notes, 24 comma, and like everything. He is that guy. End quote. <laughs> he is great. He looks so familiar. It's, it's actually very calming to see him. Yeah. And he's so young. So it's like at first you're like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. I know you. Why do I know you? Hey, IMDb. Guy. Oh, that is why I know you. So it's really great to see him in this episode. Mm-hmm. I actually feel like we don't get enough Gil. We do not get enough I'm Gil. I'm sad. No, I want it's more not Gil. about Gil. Exactly. Though I, yeah, Gil has a great, great exit. I will say. Pete Richmond, 
has his eyes on on Jim in particular. So he's shaking hands and then he pulls Jim aside and lets Jim know he, know, he found out that uh, Johnson is uh, leaving the action team in DC and uh, he won't let go of Jim's hand. He's doing the thing where they're shaking hands and smiling at the photographers for the newspapers. And he just keeps smiling and shaking Jim's hand while he talks about how he's a really he's a really right fit for that spot. Doesn't Jim think so? You know what? He should send him his tape ASAP. And he starts pushing Jim about what day he, Jim should receive his tape so that he can put a word in for him. Wouldn't he put a word in for him? Jim's like, well, I'm going to be uh, gone on, on Tuesday. And well, what about Wednesday? No, I'm still going to be. How about Thursday? No, I think. How about Friday? Yep, Friday's fine. <laughs> just to get rid of Pete. He's so sweet, he can't yeah. say no. He's um deluded. But also gumption. That's how you get ahead in that kind of industry. You gotta ask while the while while you can. I was about to mix every metaphor possible in that sentence. Uh, so we then transfer over to Murphy, who has been uh, taken over to her own little photo shoot with handshakes with Diane Daly. And Diane has a completely different energy. Diane is shaking her hand and she uh, is going on this thing about, you know, not all of us had to make the big leap to network to be happy. Sure, she could have done it, but she's serving the vital needs of the backbone of this country. And you can see Murphy starting to get a little uncomfortable because she's assuming some aggressive jealousy. And then Diane does this moment that is practically supernatural, where she shakes her hair, turns around, and she has this like salty masculine energy and states that she hears that DC is Yankin Johnson, which that phrase... <laughs> Sai and Denise. You know, they laughed about oh, that in the, in the, my in the writer's room. That DC mm-hmm. is yanking Johnson is chef's kiss. <laughs> oh, and she starts like, she even pulls on this like, I feel like she was doing like if someone was doing a caricature of Murphy Brown, where like her shoulders kind of hunch forward and she all of a sudden gets kind of like hyper masculine. Oh, and she's like, point. guess a guy is taking his place. Some blow dried yo-yo with the brains of a Ken doll. And she's just... So it's you could like I what I love is Candace plays this as such whiplash because it is like she goes from zero to 60. Yeah, she feels like a character from uh, Married with Children. Yes, absolutely. It's and you can tell the audience is living for this character transformation because Murphy, you know, starts to say, well, she doesn't know who would uh, be getting that spot. She goes, oh, yeah, right. Big network star. And the way she says big, big network star is so caricature, so over the top. The audience loves it like this woman is about to exit in two sentences and she gets her own cheer because she's ridiculous and she goes well what does she care and she starts ranting about like what does murphy care about what they're going through and she explains that one more hand in the combine story and she's going to shoot myself get out of my way and just storms out of the way like she is a queen i kind of i kind of love this is also very new for me because growing up in the you know new york new jersey Uh market most of the people on my local news, not all of them, mostly just the men, sorry to say, ended up on mm-hmm. the network shows. And as a kid, I didn't really understand the difference, you know, because you're there, you're in a, you're mm-hmm. in a larger market next to all of the national news. It's much easier to like, hey, come and fill in yeah. for Al Roker. Like Al Roker was my local weather guy before he was yeah. on the Today Show. So I find this so interesting because I look back and I go, oh yeah, that's right. I watched local news mm-hmm. in a very different way because of the market I lived in. I love seeing someone at this heightened caricature venting about this thing that was a really real issue in news at that point. It's really yeah, yeah. satisfying to rewatch it now because then you know most people would just laugh at it maybe awkwardly laugh at it, but it's hitting such a 
such a nail on the head. And it's something that I think if she was pulled back a little more, Murphy would have a conversation with her about it. But she, this woman, is uh, not not in control of her feelings in this moment. Also, I love that we find out that Murphy started out at a small network, too. Oh, right. Yeah. Murphy tries to tries to bond with her saying that she started out as a small at a small network first <laughs> so we get a little information so i guess before she was a foreign correspondent she worked for local i mean news. it makes sense it, you have to assume that she had to work her way up it makes sense yeah i mean you know that's how the kid in ken's class back yeah. in the murphy brown school of broadcasting local affiliate for uh pbs you know that's where you live that's where you get the job and also i think a lot of people want a piece of Murphy, and I'm sure that anytime she's among journalists that are not at her level, I bet she gets this. At this moment, Steve Rains finally arrives, and I love he's referred to as our crack meteorologist. Uh, and he arrives, and he's adorable. He's an absolute, like, absolutely a like middle-aged man from the Midwest. He has like two coats on. He has a a hat with flaps. He has mittens. He's half covered in snow. He's very jolly about it. And they are so excited to meet him. Uh, but they only, they don't have that much. They kind of have to say hi and goodbye because they have to catch a plane. And he goes, a plane. And then his laugh, I can't even recreate it. It's such a cartoon laugh. And it's adorable because mm-hmm. and Murphy is immediately suspicious. Like the way she looks at him when she goes, what's so funny? You can see the panic in her eyes. And he says, oh, there's a big storm front coming in. Five more minutes and this city's shutting down. And at that moment, Gil just drops all pretense of being a host. And he goes, been a pleasure. No, truly. And leaves. And the entire place empties in a second. I love how everyone leaves because everyone gets that. It's, it's, It's like that feeling also like in New York... And I'm sorry, this is not a feeling for everyone, but this is my experience uh, where there's a storm, a large storm coming and the subways are about to shut shut down. down. Yep. Being from a place like this where the city shuts down because of a blizzard like that. It's real. It's I there was one storm when I was visiting friends in Fargo, North Dakota, that I got. I got stranded in my friend's studio apartment while they were over at another friend's house because the storm hit really quickly and they just happened to be grabbing something and they got stuck there. So I was stuck in their studio apartment for an entire day. Cabin fever is real, y'all. Uh, it is very real. I went crazy. So yes, Gil in that moment just goes, been a pleasure. No, truly. And just leaves. And uh, everyone takes off. Everyone's holding their stuff. They drop all pretenses. They all take off. And and I'm just calling him Buddy Hackett. Steve Rains just goes, nice to have met you. Welcome to the Sunflower State. And they leave them alone. Uh, so we we cut to a hotel hallway. Obviously, Jim and Murphy are going to have to stay in this hotel. Uh, Murphy thinks the pilot is a wimp. And uh, <laughs> I really feel like Jim kind of becomes dad. I love this Jim. Oh, my. I wrote. Wait. I went adult Jim. Yeah. He's so he, measured. He's like, this is what the reality is. And no amount of complaining is going to change that. Mm-hmm. We have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, really sort of goes through the whole thing and then opens the door and he goes bonkers that they have one double bed, not two, as he had asked, and a fold-up twin. Uh, it is, what the hell is this? One double bed? I asked for two. What do you have to do to get good service in America? Morons. Uh, and now Murphy is the one who's telling him to calm down. And Jim literally says, fooey. Fooey. Fooey over and over again. I don't think I've heard the word fooey in years. 
watching this, I practice it because he goes, he does one big fooey and then he just goes fooey, fooey, fooey to himself. And it's really satisfying to say fooey like that. It kind of is. But now I'm I wondering. For, yeah. Go ahead. I think for a, a, like a certain time period, that was the acceptable replacement for fuck. Absolutely. It's the same satisfying. Like when you actually say it, it's really it's like fooey, fooey, fooey. It's really fun. And Murphy takes off her shoes and says Nirvana. And I went, oh, that's a 90s statement. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's not what she means in that moment. And that word obviously has a very long history before it was a 90s band. But Mm -hmm. it's still funny. (laughs) And she believes Mm -hmm. that men invented high heels, men with mother problems. Murphy leans back. What a horrible bed. Imagine having sex on this, which just is like the worst thing that she could say in front of Jim because he does not want to mm-hmm. hear it. And he's, he begins sort of cleaning up, kind of trying to pretend like he doesn't really know what she's saying, oh. um, which Murphy knows him so well. She realizes that, you know, she's made him feel awkward and that reminds him little. that they've known each other for years. You know, they're pals. There's that word again. Pals. And Jim agrees. Uh, he's going to lose the jacket. <laughs> oh, he's going to just party he's on so down. Chill. Uh, Murphy invades the mini fridge. One of my favorite things she says is she goes, a frozen Snickers. Yes, come to mama. <laughs> I kind of love how Murphy went from complaining to making little victories. Like she's just sort of having a good time. And and even her bemoaning is like, oh God, this would be terrible to have sex on. Like she just can't stop talking. But mm-hmm. I feel like she's kind of entertaining herself. Yeah, well, and I think it's, this is like the moment she starts toward the nostalgia that she has later. That's true. It's like now that she's stuck here, now it's like, oh, right, I love a mini fridge. Oh, right, this is fun. Like, I think she's starting to be reminded of why she enjoys this. Yeah. Also, I think Murphy's the kind of person who just likes to complain to complain, which I totally understand, and I am here for that. Yes. Uh, Now, in the mini fridge is a $6 bag of nuts, which does not make Jim very happy at all. Uh, And so he does the math about how much each nut would cost because it's too expensive. Uh, definitely, uh, he is a man who uh, whose family grew up in the Depression. I think we can say that. Mm-hmm. Murphy does not like this and tells him he just doesn't have to eat them. Then Murphy goes through all the channels. She's pretty much just being really annoying to anyone, mm-hmm. particularly to Jim. And every time they get on a channel, I feel like my grandmother was like this. She would be like, how do you even see what's happening? Because I would just yeah. flip so quickly. She's like, how... I was like, no, I can see. Like, it was too quick for her. And every time that they sort of stop on something and Jim gets happy about it, she just clicks to something else. And he says that the person who holds the clicker has a certain responsibility and that she just doesn't um, know how to watch TV, you know, with other people. And he thinks that she's just selfish. May I please recite this quote? Oh, my God, please. Yes. Because I love it so much. Also, I I love the mathematics that Jim does figuring out. Into the I love mathematics, Jim. I feel like I saw like a teenage version of himself. So he says, Murphy, you're obviously not used to watching the television with other people. The person who holds the clicker has a certain responsibility to others, and you are abusing your privilege. Dad. He's so cute. He's, He's so cute here. No, he in this point, he, at this point, he is like pouting. Like there is a hurt there. He is not dad in that moment. He's so cute. He's like, no. You have a certain adorable. responsibility to others and you are abusing your privilege. He's like he's like the the sibling that listens to mom and dad. 
mm. in this moment and the other one isn't and he's like he's hurt by the fact that the rules are not being followed as he That's has true. been following them yes he definitely likes rules but i also he's feel so like cute he's correct that murphy's being selfish but I, yeah. I don't think that she doesn't know how to watch TV with other people. I feel like that after sex, Murphy would do this with someone in the bed with her. I do not think that she cares. No, but that's the thing. She doesn't know how to watch pe- TV with other people. Yes, like she watches true. TV and other people are there. But yeah. it is not a shared experience. Like not I, that's what like no, nothing she, is shared. She does Murphy. not share. Yeah. No, no, no. She's she's obviously such an only child. Yes. Then Murphy goes back to what they were originally watching, which was an episode of Jacques Cousteau, only Jim realizes that it's the Blowfish episode and he hates that one. He does a little more pounding. Hate this one. Uh, So Murphy decides to go to sleep. She'll take the cot, but Jim, of course, won't hear of it because he is a gentleman. But Murphy Mm -hmm. doesn't want special treatment as a woman or she'll open another bag of those nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then Murphy and Jim begin to get undressed. And... (laughs) That sounded really ominous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to them, it feels very ominous. Uh, yes. Um, and then they both realize that they're getting undressed in front of each other, which is a really great preamble to season three's episode, The Novel, which we mm-hmm. both love. Little little spoiler there for people. So they quickly decide to go to the bar, and Jim says, you're on. And I love the way he says you're on because it's the most slash uncomfortable slash relief he's like so in relieved. one word mm-hmm. charles kimber was really good at expressing several different emotions with very little dialogue yes i also love that there is zero chance they'd be attracted to each other mm. like it's just a non-issue like the awkwardness doesn't come from like oh gosh i don't want to think about you this way it comes from a oh no no we this no do not want to see like it's again it's the ability to have platonic male female relationships mm-hmm. and also while they're not in the reality of time they're not that far apart in age yeah, that it would be not. insane um but it there just is a enough of a generational split that it's just a non-issue yeah and he respects regardless her. of novels to come up as as a man of jim's bearing Mm-hmm. Uh, and personality and time period that he lives in, he respects Murphy too much. He would feel that he was, it, w- it would be wrong for him to be mm-hmm. in a room with another woman that he's not married to who's getting undressed. As no we matter find who, out. As we find out. This is not the Jim Dial way. No, it's, oh, I love that. It is not the Jim Dial way. Mm. T-shirts, everybody. We need T-shirts. Ding, ding. So... As, as stipulated by Murphy, we find ourselves back in the bar. We arrived to the bar from earlier. It is completely empty. And I just wrote, I know these hotel bars. These are the bars of my childhood. These are the bars that like, while it was a bar, it's also where the like Sunday buffet happens. It's also mm. maybe a VFW. It's the old leather, probably pleather, backed swivel chairs that are seated around low kind of rickety tables that have a bunch of coasters underneath them because, of course, it's on carpet at the same time. The walls are like brown with wood paneling, so it's kind of brown on brown. There's a lot of random like hunting adjacent paraphernalia. There's probably, I mean, you have to assume there's a dartboard somewhere in the corner. There's maybe one ancient mm. pinball machine that's hanging out somewhere else. Normally, when it's not a blizzard, you you know, like the same three townies come here and 
sit at at that corner of the bar that we're going to see in a minute. Like, I just, I know this bar so well. I learned, I learned how to drink in one of these bars in college. This is one of the bars that I feel like would have those little plastic swords in many different colors. Yes. Yes. And you can, if you want another one, you can get it. That's usually, so if you were growing up where I did, if you were one of the children that came with the adults for like the buffet and so on, the bartender to make it seem less weird that kids are in this bar, because it is still a bar, would like give us little swords. You know, like we were placated with like cherries stabbed with these swords. That's so funny that you say that because there was a bar like this in this sort of um, restaurant bar that had a huge room in the back. Mm -hmm. My family would have a huge Passover Seder every Mm -hmm. year there. And my cousin and I would sneak into the bar to take the tiny swords. So Murphy comments on this room, uh, 500 people stranded alone together and no one's in the bar. I hate the 90s. I love that she says that. And they make their way toward the bar. There's a barkeep there doing his thing. And then the most beautiful woman of mature age in a dark teal Mm. dress and stunning like silver bob arrives. She's gorgeous. I also want that dress. Yeah. Everything about her is fabulous. It screams gym. And it's understated. casting. Like she's not Mm -hmm. trying very hard, but she's stunning. Like, you, you totally Smart. know that, like, as a young woman, she was kind of like an all-American kind of beauty. Like, she kept funny. it simple. Yes. Oh, yes. She's gorgeous. And the barkeep, she must have gone away to, you know, make a phone call, find out about the weather, uh, ask her what the state is. She says, no, it looks like they're all stuck there. She's going to be missing that board meeting later. So, of course, you're also clocking, like, oh, this is a an intelligent career woman. We respect her. She is smart. That's the most that we get so far of her. Like, we actually get more of her than we see them taking in, even though we find out in a minute mm-hmm. that Murphy's paying attention. And Mur- because Murphy's asking Jim to play the piano. And look, there's just a piano on that stage that was taken up by musicians earlier. Should we talk about the musicians from earlier? Yes, let's talk about the musicians from earlier. There's something interesting that uh, we found out about one of them. We did. Yeah, because we actually interviewed Denise before we recorded this episode, even though it's going to air after this episode. And she let us know that her father, who is is a musician in the union, because apparently even if you're on stage playing along to a track, you have to be in the mm-hmm. union. One of them is uh, Denise Moss's father. Who loved Duke Ellington. Yeah. It's such a, you'll, you'll hear us react to this story in her interview, so I don't want to take too much away from it, but it was really cool to note that back when we first entered the bar in Kansas, there was in the background, a very gentle, uh, small band that was playing along and kind of orchestrating this whole first scene in the bar. And he was in there and it was really cool. Yeah. You'll hear more about this episode and why... Duke Ellington means a lot to Denise when we have the interview. But for now, Jesse is going to talk a little bit about Duke Ellington. Coming back to the episode, Jim uh, does his gym thing. He hems and he haws. And Murphy makes a very good point that if you didn't want to be asked to play an instrument, you should have learned the bassoon. A huge, fantastic point. It's a great point. If you if you didn't want to be asked to, to play for people, don't learn the piano and be able to sing so beautifully. So what I also love is, Murphy, as he walks his way over and, you know, acquiesces as we know he was going to, she's so excited for him to play mm-hmm. for her. It's, yeah, this is such a great episode for their relationship 
because you get to see them it away really from is, everyone. Yeah. You get to see the what, the candor that they use around each other. I noted a couple of times Jim's voice changes around her in this episode. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting. And but I love she's so excited for him to play. So he starts playing and at first he's just playing the piano. And then his mouth opens and he starts to sing, don't get around much anymore. And I started crying. Just, oh, of course. Full crying. It's, he's so wonderful. And he's so lovely in this scene. Oh, his voice is so great. And something that you brought up in the Denise interview is the fact that he sings differently as Jim than just yeah, Charlie Kimbrough so sings. So differently. And it's true. Like, But what I love is like, I think the easier choice would have been, been to make Jim sing kind of stilted in his Jim voice, but he doesn't, he has a, he has a beautiful voice. It's definitely Jim's singing voice, yeah. but it's a beautiful voice because it's Charlie Kimbrough. Yeah. It, but it's just not the way that I've mm-hmm. heard and we've all heard. And if you haven't, Do yourself a favor. please check oh. out the, the cast albums for Sunday in the Park with George company. And it's just, that's not how he usually sings. No. And it makes sense because Jim is not a Broadway trained singer. No, but he is a beautiful singer. And I love that they let him have a beautiful voice. Yeah, it's a great choice. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. Because it could, because the the joke is what's coming up next. Yes. The joke is not that Jim can't yeah. sing. The, the joke has to be. That Murphy ruins it. And yeah. there are a couple things that happen here. Murphy, I mean, Candace does the perfect ham moment of like standing on the other side of the piano, enjoying his beautiful voice. I'm crying because Jim is wonderful. And then Murphy just whips around to face basically out to the audience, essentially, and opens her mouth and does that wonderful Candace Bergen singing thing of just Mm. aggressive belting, not good belting, aggressive belting. It's not that she's not on the notes. She's on most of them, but it's not pleasant like we've been uh, getting to uh, to feel with Jim. And the barkeep <laughs> has oh, flinches. Oh, he winces. The, the cut to the barkeep, because we've had two cuts. We've cut to the barkeep, and he looks just, oh, this is nice, and he's cleaning the bar. And then they clearly just were like, okay, and now react to Murphy. And then they cut back to the same frame, and he is just horrified by what is happening. It's fantastic. And it's, I think it's this idea, of course, which is another reason why it's so funny, this juxtaposition of this beautiful woman mm-hmm. who, with this horrible sound coming horrible out of her sound. beautiful mouth. And she doesn't care. And she, and she is showboating behind Jim. No. And what I love is Jim doesn't even react. He just keeps going. That's, he yeah. is smiling. He is playing. He doesn't flinch once. He doesn't look at her funny. He's grinning and smiling and play. He's not even like laughing at her. He's just enjoying it with no judgment of what she sounds like. And it's he does his little like Jim squint and smile at the end as they close the song together. You get the impression they've done this before. And it's just it's such a lovely moment again for their relationship where you're like, he he has never, you know, yucked her yum of singing along. Yeah. And she does, she kind of also, the way that she turns her head towards the camera, Mm -hmm. so it's this huge surprise, is that she kind of does it like a Muppet. Yes. Oh, her, the way she does, we've called it, you know, we've said she has a Kermit laugh, because she has this ability Mm -hmm. to suddenly make her mouth, I'm doing this for the camera, you can't see it, but Lauren can. Uh, It's adorable. Where her mouth becomes almost like a hand puppet, (laughs) when she either does a Kermit (laughs) laugh, or she does this song, and it's hilarious because she is it's just all of a sudden the hinge of her face is different (laughs) 
It's so funny. It's fantastic. We will put it on the social media. You'll check out this mm-hmm. lovely, lovely clip. And they sit there on the piano bench together at, next to each other. And Murphy's going into some nostalgia. And she says it brings back a lot of memories. She realizes she's closed down a lot of bars. She must know the words last call in 50 languages. And the barkeep has somehow made his way over to clean a table next to them all of a sudden across the room and goes, have you heard it in Kansas? <laughs> and this starts a section that I love because it's such a it's such a meta moment stylistically where Jim starts plinking on the piano, just kind of playing along with some music. Well, Murphy starts to go into what I call like nostalgic cabaret storytelling. Yes. You know, oh, that's so good. like she has she's like underscored and she's like, ah, there's something about being on the road, something about being in a hotel you'll never go back to in a town you'll never remember. And she laughs to herself. And it's one of those moments that like you see when someone does like a one person cabaret, the like laugh to self as they launch into the next story that, you know, <laughs> is going to be the next song. And it's like, there's even like a lilt to the way she's speaking. I'm just imagining it now. Right? 54 below. <laughs> this next song, you know, it's a it's a funny story, actually. It's a funny story. Uh, hilarious. In, I, in I was stuck in a bar in Kansas and and oh. I thought, you know who should be here? Stephen Sondheim. He wasn't. But this song was. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, it's just so real. And what I love is as Jim's plinking on the piano and he's just listening to her and smiling to himself. And she says it uh, It reminds her of a story 10, 15 years ago about being in a hotel in Iraq. And at that moment, Jim's fingers flow into as time goes by from Casablanca. Ah. Which I die because that's my tied for my favorite black and white movie. And I know that song so well. And I swear, if any of you say the the quote incorrectly of play it again, Sam, and not just play it, Sam, I will have mm. words with you. But that just beautiful, that you do that. that beautiful moment of just all of a sudden it's like, and the audience immediately gets it. The audience knows what that sound is. This audience was very cued into this and like the really subtle jokes of this episode. Mm-hmm. They were, they were very lively and in the right ways. And then, yeah, this is not one of those jam-packed joke episodes, no. but the jokes land. Mm-hmm. But what's great about this episode is that it's such a great stepping stone of character. Yes. And we build more of Jim and Murphy's relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's so lovely that it's okay that there isn't a lot of jokes. Well, and it's such a... And I, oh, no, go ahead. No, no. And it it it's one of those episodes that we always talk about, oh, I remember liking aspects of this episode, but now seeing it again... In sort of the scope of their relationship, mm-hmm. it's really quite lovely to me. I love this episode so much more upon rewatch for this than I realized I did. Like, I knew I loved him singing, you know, like I knew I loved this yeah. moment. I didn't realize how much I loved this entire episode. And that's why I'm like, oh, I feel this feels almost like my own little heart of gold moment because, oh, it's so wonderful. But I think the reason why this audience makes me so happy is the things that they are reacting to shows how much they're listening it's such a mm-hmm. it's such a testament to the actor's ability to pull them into the writing and how clever it is the fact that this audience is leaned in hence why they catch this maybe two second riff of as time goes by and they understand the meta of the joke and the situation and they understand the reference and they're yeah. like they're so clued in it's such a a good audience that they're able to follow an episode like this it's not just a laugh factory you know and 
So she says, you know, this hotel in Iraq with a cameraman named Rutger. And she smiles into the distance. And at that moment, Jim does not want to know about any guy named Rutger. And he gets up and moves to the other side no, of the piano. of course not. Uh, and she goes, come on, Jim. It's a good story. He goes, yeah, yep, nope, I'll believe you. And she realizes that he's logged in more road time than she ever has. So he has to have some interesting stories, too. And Jim does the cutest, like, who? Me? No, not really. You, you, he, like, clutches invisible pearls in his mind. And he basically, you know, says sorry to disappoint her, but bar games, wild stunts, transcontinental liaisons just don't happen to Jim Dial. Well, Jim Dial doesn't let it happen to him. Exactly. That's what I'm going to say. This is totally that moment. And what I love is you see it in the way Candace plays Murphy of the the friend who you know everyone notices when they walk into a room that you know is stunning, who clearly doesn't know it about themselves. And it's just like... Oh, well, it's a rule, yeah. right? That's th- those are not the rules. Yep. Jim Dial did it right. Yeah, he those are the rules of what how you live your life as a gentleman. Yeah. And he says, like, he can't just go up to a woman at a bar. Besides, he's happily married. What would Doris think? And Murphy claims that Doris wouldn't care. Doris probably does it, too, because flirting is harmless. Doris totally flirts. Doris totally flirts. And she says, see that woman at the bar? She's flirting with you. Right away, eye contact, body language. And she encourages him to go over and talk to her. And what he does the cutest, this is when his voice has changed. Like, Charlie Kimbrough's voice entered mm-hmm. the scene in this exchange when he gets flustered with Murphy, where, like, the gym voice has gone away. And it's really, yeah. it's he's suddenly younger. And, and it's not just that Jim got younger. Like, the voice is different. And he says Murphy, for heaven's sake, in such a genuine place of distress like he's Mm -hmm. he's playing it off like he's brushing her off but he's clearly legitimately flustered and she says for a few minutes in a lonely hotel away from home that woman would feel like she still had sex appeal and so would you which is such an interesting concept to think about so before we go further uh i i know you had written this as a question so the concept of is flirting harmless yes you would pose the question Uh, so i'm curious yeah um, I agree with Murphy. I think it is harmless. I I do wonder this idea of purposely going up to someone just to flirt with them with no end game, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't know if the other person is also just flirting to feel better, mm-hmm. right? But I I agree. I think that there is nothing wrong with flirting. It's fun conversation is it's long as, you know, was it you're not putting your mouth where your money is or money where your mm-hmm. mouth is? What is the saying? Yep. Um, you know, if you're secure in your relationship, I don't see what's wrong with it. I mean, obviously, like I said, I think there's a point, but I, I wouldn't be mad at my partner if they were just flirting because it's about your actions. I don't know. What do you think? I 100 percent. I think flirting is harmless. I think that there is a difference, though, like you're saying. Like, I'm a naturally flirtatious person. Um, I could never be with somebody who is extremely jealous um, because I just, I'm a naturally flirtatious person with all of my friends, uh, gender not included. And uh, Mm -hmm. because flirtation is harmless, I would say, though, if I found out, like, if I found out my partner was flirting with someone because they were part of a group having a conversation and they met at a bar because they were stranded and whatever. Like, I would not care about that. If I found out my partner 
actively sought out another single who was interested in them to actively flirt, I would have a problem with that. Um, The premise of it is there's a difference between intentional, like I'm going to go hit on this person. Exactly. And being flirtatious. It becomes a game. Exactly. And the game would actually bother me. Yeah. So... I understand. I'm not upset with this episode at all. No, not at all. I, I understand because they're they're, and I'm not upset with Jim either because I feel like he, in the context of of you know making this an active choice and an active action mm-hmm. in a script, I don't question it at all. This is jumping ahead a little bit. Jim goes into it to prove that he can't flirt. It's not an active choice on Jim's part because he thinks it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And then he changes as a person because he sees that it does. Yeah. And I think it's actually very smart structure wise. Mm-hmm. But I have no problem with Jim because he's not saying, oh, here's here's a hundred bucks. Let me see if I can get this girl to yes. you know go out with me. It's not an 80s movie. <laughs> well, and also Murphy's motivation in challenging him to do it is not harmful like she's not doing it from a place of like go pick up that chick i bet you can do it she's doing yeah. it from a place of like my friend J- like jim you absolutely have it in you like she's seeing that he's being like that's not something i could do that's not me I, d- I don't have the ability to pick up people and like she says in a minute like you absolutely do like it's much more of a place of proving to her friend that he has the capacity to have had all of those wild events that she's talking about and that i think at the end of the day that it's okay that he didn't yeah you know like i think there's something about the like those things didn't happen because you didn't have it in you they didn't happen because that's not who you are Mm -hmm. yeah and that's why like i uh, i also don't mind this episode at all because i completely trust the motivations and the intentions of the players i don't i don't know if we find out her name much later as Nancy. I'm not sure Nancy might necessarily agree based on the fact that she, all she perceived is the fact that someone came up and started hitting on her. But yeah, you know, we get the benefit of seeing inside the hearts and minds of the leads of the show. So I know that they're not being predatory, but I think, yeah, if my partner came home and was like, Hey, I just needed to prove to myself that I could, that I could hit on somebody be like, well, I'm here. So I think you can, but I don't think flirting in itself is harmful. Now, this is also within a monogamous framework. We are speaking within monogamy in the framework of the show. And Mm -hmm. the idea of a monogamous relationship is just because you don't, you no longer order from the menu doesn't mean you don't see the items on it. You can still read the menu. Exactly. You're just you can not still ordering. find other people attractive. Yes, or pretty I do. Or interesting. Yeah, you would be dead. Yes. Yeah, it's healthy. Yeah, you're human. You don't suddenly shut off a part of your brain. And I think that yeah. something that's great for Jim in this episode is that he was raised to believe that you do. Doris absolutely flirts. Mm-hmm. So Jim tells Murphy this wouldn't work because he would just say something ludicrous about the weather. And then she, the woman, would make an excuse about being late. And at this point, this is when his voice is getting very Charlie. It's it's not Jim anymore. The fluster is bringing out a very different vocal quality. And Murphy says, are you saying that in a few minutes, Jim Dial couldn't captivate that woman? And that's what I love. It's She's saying, really? You're, you're really saying you couldn't. And it's not from a place. It's not a she's all that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also originally thought she said activate that woman, which I was <laughs> like, ooh, Jim Dial could activate me in a hotel bar. Oh, hey ho! I am activated from within. Uh, and he goes, you want me to prove it to you? Fine. And as he like gathers himself to go over 
to the woman we find out later's name is Nancy. Uh, he does the cutest little hair tuck of his hair behind his ear that there was absolutely no hair needing to be tucked on the side of his ear, but it's really cute. And as he approaches her, the gym voice returns. And it's re- it's a it's a marked change back into like gym voice. Yeah. And he says, I wrote this whole thing out. Excuse me, ma'am. I was just noticing you're sitting here all alone, drinking. Oh, not to imply excessive drinking by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but what I meant to emphasize was that you're alone. N- not that it's unseemly for a woman to be sitting in a bar alone. And he's like, has he's starting to get like awkward giggles underneath his words as he's speaking. Uh, what I meant to say was, um, have a nice evening. And he starts to walk back. The the acting choices that Charles Kimbrough makes in that tiny little monologue is a full meal. Like his, he starts to stutter. He starts to look around. He's awkwardly giggling. He's reading her. He goes in and out of different voices. Like he, it's a masterclass. And as I almost said, Charlie, well, I mean, as Charlie, as Jim <laughs> starts to walk away back with, you know, his head down, the woman calls out that she loved his playing and he looks really surprised. And he says, and she says that she was impressed by him playing Ellington's original arrangement. And mm. he's like, oh, oh, you you knew that was the original arrangement. And she, you know, says that it's a shame uh, that more people don't know about that. And he starts to walk back because he's intrigued by this human and says, uh, you know, he's Jim Dial. And she says, no, I know you are. And you can see he gets a little like, oh, wow, uh, a little flustered and okay. And he starts to get excited. And you can see him nerding out over Ellington. And he says how pleasant it is to stumble upon another Ellington aficionado. I've been a student of the Dukes mm. for years, and I don't mean Wayne. And what I love is he starts to do this. As soon as he says this joke, he starts to realize it's a terrible joke. And then is shocked by the fact that Nancy starts like guffawing. She thinks he's hilarious and he's so confused by this. He thinks it's adorable. It's a joke that he would make. Yes. And I love that he in the moment like knows that he's the only one who gets this joke. <laughs> but she does too. And she asks if he's stuck in the hotel too. He says yes. And she says yeah, her too. And you know, they're doing the like, oh yeah, it sucks, doesn't it? And she says, yeah, they've given me a very lovely room. Actually, it's much too big for me. Hello. And there's just this pause of the like blink blink back and forth and when jim says may i join you i was like in the room jim he he actually means like at the bar he means at the bar but i genuinely was like are you talking about our room right now jim (laughs) we have a quick flash forward and uh murphy is losing spectacularly at pac-man uh in the background of Jim teaching our new gal how to play the song he'd just been playing. And they are very cozy. Uh, He's doing the equivalent of when you're teaching someone how to putt with a golf club or something where she's at the piano and he's standing Ah, over her with his arms around and on top of her hands. And they are giggly and they are very cozy. Murphy loses again, spectacularly at Pac-Man stands up very annoyed is clearly annoyed. It's what's happening over at the piano, which I want, you know, these are the moments when I'm like, Murphy, Murphy, <laughs> you made this. What's also interesting is that it is it's, it's such a, if people aren't aware, but in, in bars, they had these tabletop mm-hmm. video games. They're so fun. As opposed to like the ones that are upright, because I guess you could put your drinks on it. And that makes me think of old bars as oh, well. Oh yeah. I love them. I love them so, so much. 
So Murphy stands up and she walks over and just kind of interrupts them with a hi. Jim swings his leg over to sit on the other side of the woman to keep talking to her about Duke Ellington with a like, hi, Murphy, you know, Duke Ellington, and just completely ignores Murphy. Murphy's not having it. So she, in her very mature attempt to break up this little love fest, sits down. So there are three on the piano, piano stool and starts just butchering Ellington behind his back. It's distracting to say the least, but it doesn't seem to slow them down because the woman is very focused on on Jim and says that he has a masterful keystroke. Ooh, hello. What I love is Jim is not fully picking up on how hard this woman is going for him. <laughs> like, but she's also I I appreciate the way the actor is not pushing it. Too she's much not. She to the point at which we we would find her overbearing mm-hmm. because she's making Jim uncomfortable, yeah. and that would. I find her very likable. I like her very mm-hmm. much. She's not there as a villain, and that's something I really appreciate. Is like, yeah, the villain, if there is a villain of this episode, is not her. And that's why, like, I'm actually surprised we don't know her name until the next scene, because uh, it is weird to have her be like mm. the woman, because she's not the other woman in any sense of the term. Like they, she's what I appreciate about the way that Cy and Denise wrote this episode uh, with the writing team is they don't write her as someone unlikable that we hate. We're not mad at her for being yeah. in this scenario. It's very well done because it's a it's a fine line that they could have crossed. Yes, and they didn't. And I, when you were talking earlier, I think that. This approach to Jim exploring this concept, I think, is way more effective than either someone comes onto him and he's uncomfortable or him finding out after the fact that he was flirting and now he feels terrible. Uh, and you really see why this year was the only time that Charles Kimbrough was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. And this episode was one of the three episodes that he submitted, which we've mentioned before, but the other two were Anchors Away and Roasted. It's a mm-hmm. really good year for Jim. Yeah, it's a great year for Jim. And it's probably why it's one of my favorite seasons, because he's still great. He does, though, when she says the masterful keystroke, there's just enough purr in her voice that he starts to get awkward. And he goes, it's in the... um rhythm and so he starts playing the piano because it's absolutely that like nerdy musician thing of like i'm uncomfortable i'm gonna start playing playing the instrument in front of me and starts crooning but i only have eyes for you oh jim and he doesn't he hasn't said the words of the the lyrics yet but he's definitely put and we all know what the song is and murphy is next to him being an absolute child like jim what is it murphy can i have another quarter (laughs) and jim in dad mode just gives her a quarter she goes back to the Pac-Man. They're now singing the lyrics of I only have eyes for you and they only have eyes for each other. Cut two. So we're back in the hotel room, but it's dark. Jim sneaks in with his jacket over his arm. Uh, he slowly gets undressed, takes his pants off, backs into the bed, which is interesting considering that supposedly no one's in the bed. But I guess he feels that that's uh-huh. the easiest way to get in. And uh, then Murphy puts on the li- the light as she has been awake the whole time. And she is sitting up in the bed in a slip. And Jim, of course, jumps back and pulls the comforter to cover him. <laughs> I love that we see like a shadow of her. So like we know a second before he does that she's there. Mm-hmm. You can just see the shape of her sitting there. And you're like, hey, hey, hey. And uh, and. I rarely see Murphy in a slip, so it it feels, you know, like they wanted to make her look as naked as possible without being naked. 
Murphy can't believe how late it is. Uh, he uh, can't believe that she is in his bed. Uh, but Murphy feels that it's her bed now because she deserves it. And pretty much they they argue about, you know, how it's 4 a.m. and that the bar closed at 2. Um, Jim said that they were open late because they had to do some cleaning. Um, and she thinks that Jim slept with Nancy. Finally, Jim lets it all out. He He confesses this detailed, detailed liaisons. I feel like the number of times, multiple times in this episode, Jim refers to liaisons. And I'm like, I feel like that's the perfect setup for the type of novelist he wants to be. You know, it's a liaison. Mm-hmm. Jim suggested they go up to her room. He ordered champagne. He put on the radio. Moonlight Sonata came on. They kissed and they sank to the floor. The floor? And Murphy is just shocked and appalled and and yes. Jim feels well if you didn't want to hear it you shouldn't have asked and and Murphy feels responsible that he he cheated on Doris and this is all her fault that he he's a married man and then uh Jim starts to laugh because he made the whole thing up and he couldn't believe that she actually believed him particularly the floor part uh that nothing happened but I will say it's I believe him because of this performance is so good. Oh, yes. Oh, I totally agree with that. He admits it, you know, that flirting did something to his ego. But after 13 years together, well, he does confess that she did ask him up to her room and he considered it, but he didn't go because he loves his wife. Doris. Because we love Doris. Also, do you have what all the stuff that he said he was going to say, but she wouldn't? She was like, the floor, because like the floor, he couldn't believe that she believed him about being on the floor. And then he was like, I was going to say the shower floor, but that was too much. But he's glad it happened. You know, he he knows now what he would do. Uh, and he, he doesn't want Murphy to complete her record story. <laughs> he calls him Helmet at one point. Like, he just refuses to learn the name. <laughs> and then they both try to get back in the bed together until they realize that they can't do that because it's awkward and Murphy gets into the folding bed and she she talks about that, you know, nothing happened that they can't tell anyone. Jim ate a $6 bag of nuts, almost had an affair, and got into bed with me. And then Jim has the best last line. He turns off the lights and as they're lying there in bed, he says to Murphy, if anyone should question her about any of this, don't mention the nuts. That's our boy with his priorities in line. This was set, again, we keep saying this, but like these earlier seasons, like watching some of these, I love this episode more than I thought I did, like as a whole. Also, kudos to the showrunning team for when they chose to place this episode. Having this relationship for Murphy explored so soon after we see such a big new relationship for her, I think is something really grounding as an audience member. Are you following us on social media? Why not? Why not, I ask you? Because if you were, you would know that we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murphy Brown Pod. You would know that our website is murphybrownpod.com. You would know you could just email us at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Most of the money in the Patreon is going towards literally editing the words that we're doing right now, which if we don't have editing, we don't have an episode. And I know that, you know, as a fellow podcast listener, I know a lot of times you hear pitches for things like a Patreon. And just to put it in perspective for you, you know, this the Patreon does things like it gave us the ability to replace equipment when we needed it that otherwise meant we couldn't have recorded. Every little bit helps. So we really do appreciate it. It doesn't go unnoticed. It takes a village and you're part of that village. 
And we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Bye.